0: In the 1940s and 50s, the New York Yankees dominated Major League Baseball. During those two decades, they won 10 World Series championships, including five in a row from 1949 to 1953. They had baseball legends like center fielder Mickey Mantle, pitcher Whitey Ford, and a diminutive catcher, named Yogi Berra. Before joining the Yankees, Yogi was a World War II veteran who served in the United States Navy during the Normandy landings on June 6, 1944, D-Day. After the war, Yogi played minor league baseball for a couple of years, and then was called up to the Yankees in September 1946. He went on to play in 14 World Series, winning 10 of them, both of which are records to this day. And in 1972, Yogi Berra was elected to baseball's Hall of Fame. Now, you would think that with a resume like that, he would be most famous for his baseball career. But in actual fact, Yogi is probably best remembered for the countless number of yogiisms that have made their way into the English language. These are pithy sayings of his that, on the surface, made absolutely no sense, but always seemed to contain a nugget of truth. You've probably heard many of these already, but just didn't recognize the source. Here are a few examples. It ain't over till it's over. It's deja vu all over again. You can observe a lot by watching. Baseball is 90% mental, the other half is physical. Always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't go to yours. And my personal favorite, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. (laughs) Yes, indeed, it certainly is tough to make predictions, especially about the future. I've tried it many times, and I have to say that my record isn't very good you've probably done the same and experienced similar failure. Because, well, making predictions is hard, especially about the future. And if we are talking about predicting events that are well into the future, say, hundreds or even thousands of years from now, accurately making those predictions is not just hard, it's impossible. Impossible that is unless someone who knows the future tells you what it is going to be. And that someone, of course, can only be God. And that is what we find as we come this morning to the 11th of the 12 minor prophets, Zechariah. He may be considered among the minor prophets but he is very much in the major leagues when it comes to making predictions about the future. His is the longest book of the 12, and he makes amazing prophecies about very significant events that will happen to the Jewish people and to the nations of the world during his near future, during the time when the Messiah would come, about 500 years after he wrote his book, and during the end times. Interestingly for a prophet, his name means the Lord remembers, or Yahweh remembers, which is really the theme of this book. And you might think that this applies to God remembering and keeping all of the past promises or covenants that he made with the Jewish people. And you would be correct. It certainly does apply to the past. But it also means so much more than this. You see, even mere mortals remember the past. But our God, he is so great so powerful, so in control over everything that has ever happened or will ever happen that he not only remembers the past, he remembers the future. Examples of prophecies that demonstrate this abound in scripture. The most famous example is Isaiah 53. A prophecy about Jesus written 700 years before he died on the cross. And yet, it is written almost entirely in the past tense. In Isaiah 53.3, for example, Isaiah writes, he was despised and rejected by men. What do you mean, Isaiah? Don't you mean he will be despised and rejected by men? Or in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Again, we have to ask, what do you mean, Isaiah? Don't you mean he will be pierced for our transgressions? No. He was pierced for our transgressions. You see, our God is so in control of the future that it is guaranteed. And Isaiah can write in the past tense, he was pierced for our transgressions. And Zechariah picks up on this as well, predicting with incredible accuracy future events, but writing some of the very recognizable events in Jesus's life and death in the past tense. In Zechariah 11, for example, he writes, and they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And again, in Zechariah 12, verse 10, he writes, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is a verse that we will come back to again later on. But for now, I just wanna emphasize the fact that these prophets prophesy about events in the distant future, but often write in the past tense. And one of the main reasons for this is that from God's perspective, the future is so secure, so certain, that it is as if the future has already happened. And so he doesn't just predict the future. He remembers it. That's how secure, how certain, the future that God tells us about is. And this morning... I want to give you three implications from Zechariah's prophecies that result from the fact that God remembers the future. The first one is this. Because God remembers the future, don't be discouraged. In order to show you why we shouldn't be discouraged, I need to first give you a little bit of amazing history that began a few decades before Zechariah and his older contemporary Haggai prophesied. And as I go through this, I want you to listen in particular for all the interventions of God. This history will take us back to the beginning of the 6th century BC. And here we find the Jewish people in an utterly desperate State, the great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, the same Nebuchadnezzar as in the book of Daniel, went to war against the kingdom of Judah and captured Jerusalem in 598 BC. This is exactly what God said would happen through the prophet Isaiah a century earlier. And later through the prophet Jeremiah, because God had grown weary of the sinfulness of the Jewish people. In fact, God was so in control that do you know what God calls Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah? God calls him my servant. Yes, the great pagan king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was the servant of God. And the second verse of Daniel says this about Nebuchadnezzar's victory. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar didn't take the kingdom of Judah. It was given to him by God. You see, God knows, determines, and remembers the future. And there is no conqueror, no ruler, no king, no president, no prime minister who has power or authority except it be given by God. And Jesus says to Pilate in John 19, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And Daniel says about God, he removes kings and sets up kings. And even the great Nebuchadnezzar was no different. God used Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment upon the Jewish people. But he wasn't finished yet. After Nebuchadnezzar had captured Jerusalem, the Jews tried to rebel. And so in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar fully crushed the kingdom of Judah and destroyed Jerusalem. In doing so, he left Jerusalem in ruins. He burned the temple to the ground and he took the Jewish people captive back. To Babylon. Once there, Nebuchadnezzar sought to further demoralize and assimilate the Jewish people by attempting to wipe out any last vestiges of their culture and religion. Daniel chapter 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took away the vessels of the house of God from them. He integrated the best of their young men into his royal court, taught them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, fed them food that was not their own, and gave them names that linked them to Babylonian gods instead of their Jewish names linked to their one true God. If you look at all of this, you would have to say, that the situation of the Jewish people couldn't possibly be worse. Virtually everything they possessed had been taken away and destroyed. They were a conquered people, and they were being held captive over a thousand kilometers away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem but I won't keep you in suspense. They come back. Yes, they come back. The Jewish people always seem to come back to their land because God had said through the prophet Jeremiah that they would both be conquered by the Babylonians and later freed to return to their land. Yes, our God not only predicts the future, He remembers it. So now fast forward a few decades after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And we come to Zechariah's day. And I love how specific the word of God is. In the opening verse of Zechariah, we read, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Well, who was Darius? Well, after the Babylonian Empire conquered Judah, the Medo-Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great, actually conquered the Babylonians. And do you know who predicted that? You guessed it. Our God. This time through the prophet Daniel, who interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, and told Nebuchadnezzar the following. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and it's interpretation sure. Wow. And then when Cyrus the Great died in 530 530 BC, the ruler who Zachariah mentions in verse one, Darius eventually came to power. So now, listen to how God used these two pagan Persian kings, Cyrus and Darius. It is absolutely astounding. First, he used Cyrus the Great to free the Jewish people from captivity in Babylon. Ezra chapter 1 tells us that the Lord actually stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to cause him to make his proclamation to free the Jewish people to return to Judah in order to build, rebuild the temple. That's amazing. And his original proclamation, Cyrus's original proclamation actually still exists today in the British Museum the so-called Cyrus Cylinder. As a result of his proclamation, about 50,000 Jews returned from Babylon to Judah, and they immediately began to rebuild the temple. Within a year after returning from Babylon, the people had laid the foundation for the new temple, but then opposition to the building of the temple arose from surrounding neighbors of Judah, and the work stopped. You can see Ezra chapter 3 and 4 to read more about this. For almost two decades, the temple continued to lie in ruins until Haggai and Zechariah came along to encourage the people to resume rebuilding the temple. In Zechariah 4, God reminds them that opposition is nothing to him. He says in verses 6 and 7, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain He shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Yes, nothing could stop the building of the temple if that is what God had promised would happen. And so amazingly, God even worked in the heart of the new king of Persia, Darius, to have him Finance the building effort. And within four years, the temple was completed in 516 BC. Just amazing. Time and time again, God had said exactly what would happen and always, always kept his promises. He remembered the future even when things looked totally hopeless for the Jewish people, God did not forget them. And he had the situation totally under control. And so, brothers and sisters, this ought to also encourage us. When we face seemingly hopeless situations, when opposition is all around us, when our leaders are ungodly, when the world is encroaching on our territory and our beliefs, God remains in control. Job 42.2 says this about God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And the prophet Isaiah encourages us with these words in Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That is exactly the message that Zechariah encouraged the Jewish people with. And encourages us with even today. Because God remembers the future, don't be discouraged. Not only shouldn't we be discouraged, but because God remembers the future, we also shouldn't be alarmed. The problem is, though, that as we read through Zechariah, as our brother Femi read for us earlier, there seems to be much to be alarmed about. Repeatedly, God warns through this prophet that he is going to bring cataclysmic judgment upon this world. And this is a fact that Zechariah emphasizes, particularly in the last part of the book, chapters 12 through 14. In chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Zechariah writes, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And continuing in verse 9, he writes, And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And when is that day? Well, the very next verse, verse 10, provides a clue. In verse 10... God remembers the future and says about that day, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him As one weeps over a firstborn. Now you might think that this prophecy was fulfilled right after Jesus was crucified, and to an extent it was. But its full fulfillment actually comes much later when Jesus comes back again. Because the apostle John, who says in Revelation 1, verse 1 that he is writing about future events, refers to Zechariah's prophecy. And in Revelation 1, verses 7 and 8, he writes this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth, will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Do you recognize the reference to Zachariah's prophecy? The prophecies certainly sound the same, But there is more than just a superficial reference here. Who is the him whom they have pierced in Zechariah's prophecy? Well, as Christians, we are, of course, very confident it is Christ. But Zechariah and John make it certain. You see, the Hebrew word for whom... Is composed of the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Tau. And when the Apostle John refers to Zechariah's prophecy, he adds, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So who is the him whom they have pierced? It is Jesus, the Lord God, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And it is just before he comes again with the clouds that there will be this period of cataclysmic judgment upon the world. Now, I obviously don't have time to get into all the details surrounding the end times. And I know, of course, that there are a variety of different views regarding these events among Christians that I have a great deal of respect for. But suffice it to say that there is at least one, if not more, periods of God's intense wrath coming upon this world during the period that we commonly refer to as the end times. At least 19 times in the Old Testament, the time when God pours out his wrath on the world is referred to as the day of the Lord or a variant of this phrase. This includes in the climactic chapter of Zechariah, where the prophet writes this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered. And the New Testament authors pick up on this use of the phrase, the day of the Lord, and apply it to times of cataclysmic judgment that are coming upon the world during the end times. In 2 Peter 3, for example, the Apostle Peter writes in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And very intense descriptions of the type of wrath we are talking about are found in Matthew 24 And Mark 13. In Matthew 24, for example, we read As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Yes, a time of great tribulation is coming upon the earth that is greater than anything that has ever been, and greater. Than anything that will ever be. That would make it a greater time of tribulation than even the flood. That is horrific. And yet Jesus says, don't be alarmed. (laughs) Don't be alarmed when something scarier than the flood is coming to this earth. And Zechariah also, he says in chapter 8, fear not. And in chapter 2 and chapter 9, rejoice, rejoice greatly. Fear not, rejoice, rejoice greatly, don't be alarmed. How is that possible? That sounds a little unrealistic, doesn't it? Well, God, of course, is never wrong. So why shouldn't we be alarmed? There are lots of reasons, but I am going to give you the best one. Jesus is coming back. Zechariah had prophesied that he was coming to die, but Zechariah also prophesied that Jesus would come back again as we saw from the connection with the prophecy in Revelation, when Jesus comes in the clouds. And at the end of Zechariah, in chapter 14, Zechariah says about Jesus' second coming, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day... His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. And then in John 14, on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus gives us the greatest comfort of all about his second coming. He says to his disciples and to us, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, don't be alarmed. Everything is under control. I know what I am doing. I will not and cannot be defeated. Believe in God because God remembers the future, we have no need to be alarmed by anything. And that brings me to the third implication from Zechariah that results from the fact that God remembers the future. Because God remembers the future, please, please, Don't be unprepared. Yesterday, of course, was the 20th anniversary of an incredibly sad day, 9-11. It was a day so horrifying that it really did feel like the world was coming to an end. I remember standing transfixed before a television set shaking, tears streaming down my face, and not believing what I was seeing. Just the week before, over the Labor Day long weekend, I had been in New York City with some friends watching the US Open tennis tournament. It was a fun weekend, and life seemed pretty good. Even the morning of 9-11, was a beautiful morning in New York City. A crystal clear blue sky and not a hint that the world was about to change. Before the clock struck 11 a.m., two 100-story skyscrapers had collapsed like they were sand. And 3,000 people who woke up that beautiful morning went into eternity. Many of those who died were not Christians, but some of them were. And if you wanna hear one of the most amazing and heart-wrenching stories from that day, look up a documentary entitled In My Seat, where Christian Pilate Steve Scheibner tells the story of how he was supposed to pilot American Airlines Flight 11 that crashed into the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001. But he was replaced just the night before by another Christian pilot, Tom McGinnis. Tom McGinnis flew in Steve Scheibner's seat on September 11th, 2001, and went into the presence of the Lord while Steve Scheibner was given more time here on earth to get ready for that day when he too would meet his Savior. In reflecting on how that event impacted his life, Steve Scheibner said this, what has struck, stuck with me all these years, the fact that he did leave me behind, is that I need to act like I'm living on borrowed time, because I am. I saw where I should have died but I didn't. And now there's an obligation that comes with that. I've got to live my days with a sense of urgency. I have to make sure that I get the most out of them. Not the most for me. This is not about me. This is about the distinct privilege I've been given to know that somebody died in my life. Place. What I know is that somebody died in my place not once, but twice. That other person who died in his place is, of course, Jesus. Jesus died in our place. And with that comes an obligation, not so much in the onerous sense but in the privileged sense. The privilege of storing up treasure in heaven. The privilege of enjoying every spiritual blessing that has been given to us. The privilege of glorifying God and hearing him say when we die, well done, good and faithful servant. Yesterday, brothers and sisters, we remembered the past. But God wants us to remember the future. If we knew on September 10th, 2001, what was coming on September 11th, do you think we would have done anything differently? Of course we would have. Friends, We are all living on borrowed time. Just like Steve Scheibner was given a new lease on life, we have as well. What are you going to do with it? Zachariah has told us about a future that is infinitely more important, infinitely more alarming, Infinitely more urgent, and praise God, also infinitely more glorious. And unlike our lack of knowledge on September 10th, the future that God has described is known to us. It is guaranteed, it is certain, and we have no excuse for not being ready for it. So I ask you today, are you ready for it? If you are listening today and you have not put your faith and trust in Christ who died in your place to take away your sins, I am here to tell you today that you are not ready. And I pray that you will get ready today. And I encourage you that if you want to learn more about Jesus or have questions, speak to one of us or a Christian friend today. Nothing that you have planned in your life is more important than getting ready to meet God. And if you are listening today and you are a Christian, I want to tell you that we have work to do. Don't be lulled to sleep by the fact that you are saved or that Jesus hasn't come back yet. He is coming back, as sure as I am standing here today. And we all need to live with a sense of of urgency and be ready. Let me close with the final verses from the passage in 2 Peter 3 that we looked at earlier where Peter tells the Christians who are waiting for the second coming of Christ this very thing. Therefore, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Verse 17. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity, amen. My friends, God remembers the future. God remembers your future. Are you ready for it? Let's pray together.